Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I uh, was first in communication with my guest this hour in 2016, and uh, I had been speaking with a Calgary police officer who came on the air with us and shared with us her story of having been bullied while she was on the force and the bullying that was going on uh, within the Calgary Police Service. That, sometime after I aired the interview, became a major story. And uh, I became aware of Mr. Don Goss at that time, and he and I exchanged some emails. And uh, I asked him if he wanted to go on the air with, with what he'd experienced in Edmonton with the Edmonton Police Service. But he wasn't quite ready at the time. So about two weeks ago, I received an email from uh, Don, and uh, we talked. And he joins us today on the program. It's an exclusive story. You're hearing it for the first time here. It's the personal story of the multi-year emotionally crushing bullying that the Edmonton Police Service um, in, inflicted on, on my guest. Now, many were aware of the bullying and the harassment, and nobody stepped up to stand with Don Goss. And that includes senior leadership of the Edmonton Police Service. They're aware of this broadcast. I think some people may have helped out along the way a little bit, but not nearly enough to, uh, to make a major difference. Don is an electronics surveillance technician. He was with the electronic surveillance detail. They uh, did surrep- surreptitious installation of video, audio, and other specialized equipment to assist the Edmonton Police Service in a various uh, number of investigations. And uh, Don is with us along with his lawyer, Robert Clyden, uh, also from Edmonton. Don, Bob, thank you for uh, for having the confidence to tell your story here. Hey, Roy, thanks for having us on your show. Uh, appreciate this opportunity. Happy Easter to everyone. And uh, I, I just need to uh, make a quick comment on what you said before we came on air. <clears throat> we have a solution here in Alberta for high gas prices, if anyone's interested, but it involves pipelines. <laughs> I thought I'd just throw that in. <laughs> now, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> That's a good one. Buy some of our oil, folks. But anyways, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bob, good to talk to you as well. Yes, thank you. It's good to be on. Thank you. Don, let's begin. Where uh, Now, I talked about the responsibilities you had, but maybe you can flesh, out, flesh it out a little bit more for us about where you worked within the Edmonton Police Service, what your duties were, what you were expected to do on a daily basis. Well, I, I need to start out by saying um, I, I have an uh, abundance of respect for the vast majority of the people who work at the Edmonton Police Service, and for that matter, all the police services across the country. Um, they are... Uh, dedicated professionals and day in and day out I witnessed uh, uh, unbelievable feats that these guys would pull off or we all did together and uh, I couldn't have been more proud in my time working there it was it was uh, I was very proud of my time there it, it, it was just something to behold right and you had to pinch yourself or I certainly did at times thinking holy miracle do you know what we just did there um, I, I also need to uh, um, exercise an abundance of caution because a lot of the work we did is it, I'm sure most people can appreciate is 
was sensitive in nature, and I certainly can't. Uh, there's things I can and can't talk about, and uh, it, it disappoints me in a lot of ways that it's come to this, Roy. That I, because I've done everything um, possible through the channels available to me when I was still employed there to try and get this to a, a reasonable resolution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that being said, uh, my responsibilities included. Uh, the electronic support for um, files that were brought to us from various different sections in in electronic surveillance. So, it was very important work, extremely yeah. important work. For sure. So let's start at the end and then work back to the beginning, in in as as it were. When you left the Edmonton Police Service, what condition were you in emotionally? Well, physically and emotionally, I was a broken guy. I. Um, it was, uh, I don't know, There's, there's. it's difficult to describe because, uh, you know, my background, and, and just if I could frame a little bit of my background so people can understand kind of where I'm coming from on this. I spent uh, over 25 years in the telecom business. Uh, I spent just under a year with the RCMP and protective technical services <clears throat> before I started with EPS in 06. And, you know, I'm a big guy. I'm an athletic guy. Um, Played lots of rugby, hockey. Survived three brothers growing up. Um, that was probably the most difficult part. But in any case, um, you know, I, I think uh, my background, um, my tenure in other jobs, what I excelled at, all you know, everywhere I worked, you know, I was, by all accounts, well suited, you know, to do the job I was doing. But um, you know, by the time I left, I was physically. Uh, Broken. I was mentally broken, uh, and uh, paid a huge price for this. You know, I had suffered a cancer diagnosis. I lost my dad through all of this, uh, and my family paid. My immediate family paid a, a huge price too, watching me go through all this. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. John, when and how did the bullying begin? How long had you been with the EPS? And how did this all start? Well, um, I need to just quickly frame this up. Uh, back in '02, I was encouraged. Uh, in my telecom days, I did a lot of work for the Edmonton Police Service, including their data networking and their 911 system. So the area wasn't unknown to me. You know, I didn't know any of the intricate details, but I was, you know, generally aware of the type of work that was done. I was encouraged to apply in '02. I didn't. I wasn't successful. And then uh, come 2006. Um, uh, the opening came again. I applied and I was successful. Now, it, what what needs in, is a very important piece of information that uh, that people need to understand is I am the third um, coworker of this individual to leave the employment of the Edmonton Sur- uh, Police Service under similar circumstances. So, um, all in the same department. All in the same department, working with the same individual. Three of us have left now. Highly specialized. Do you think of the money and time spent, um, you know, to, to, for our specialized training, mm-hmm. uh, the intricacies of the job, um, a lot of taxpayers' money to get it yeah. trained and up to speed. Yeah. So how did it, how did it begin? So uh, my second week on the job, um, my sergeant took me aside. And, and by the way, I was I'm, I know my two predecessors, uh, one particularly well. 
So I was aware of, of the history, not all the details, but some of the general history of the problems going on. So um, it was enough of, of a concern for my, my sergeant to take me aside within my two first, first two weeks of employment and say, hey, look, um, this individual's got some history, there's some problems, um, I'm concerned how this is going to move forward and how you're going to handle this, so on and so forth. So we came to an agreement that we'd have open uh, communication and, and talk about it and try and head it off at the pass if it were, in fact, going to repeat itself. Mm -hmm. So um, probably within a month, um, some of the snide comments and uh, um, demeaning comments, uh, I was introduced to um, members who I had no idea who they were and uh, on multiple occasions in an extremely derogatory, humiliating, and uh, obscene manner. And you, you told me what that was. We're not going to repeat it here. No, you can't. But you, you can't. What you, you told me, and I absolutely confirm that what Don told me, I wasn't there for that, but what he told me was, a, was the kind of verbiage that anybody would be absolutely shocked to be introduced to strangers by or used on them at any time. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep my uh, eyes and ears open and my mouth shut. It, it's a somewhat intimidating environment to go into a paramilitary organization. And, you know, I'm, I, I realize the type of material and support we're giving. It's sensitive. I don't know, is this, uh, is this the way it goes here? Is this the way it happens? Um, but, you know, uh, you know inside, you know, and or I, I certainly have when something doesn't feel right. And mm -hmm. it made me sick to my stomach to hear that. So I respectfully said, you know, this needs to stop, which brought on more derogatory comments. And, you know, I was weak and suck it up and so on and so forth. You're not one of the boys. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Right? So this way, this, I mean... This uh, the attitude, the fundamental attitude. It, it went on day after day after day. It was a daily thing, right? Well, uh, yeah, I would say the majority of days there was always okay. something. But it, it evolved into as I got my legs under me and got got up to speed, and um, you know, I, I became good at my job. And, and it's not that this should, you know, it's a team environment. It mm -hmm. has to be, and uh, it, people have strengths and weaknesses. And, and it, this goes and repeats itself in business or teamwork, wherever, right? Wherever you want to look. And uh, so it wasn't about, well, I'm better than you or I know more than you. I mean, he had strengths, I had strengths. But the point of the matter is, collectively, those strengths should move move the ball forward, right? Yeah. And, and help do the, the task at hand. So and, this uh, happened about a month after you started working in this department. This is when it began. Yes. And... So, and you were der very derogatorily introduced to strangers. You were uh, subjected to uh, inappropriate comment and uh, just harassment on, a, on an almost daily basis. Yes. Sir. By one individual who worked with you. Exactly. So it, it's hard for you to talk about, isn't it? And I, I can only imagine how difficult it must be. It is. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big, strong guy. The last thing yeah. I thought, uh, you know, I, I could barely put a sentence together by the time I left yeah. the employee there. What do you say to people who would say, well, you know, if somebody's giving you a hard time at work, let them have it back. Just, you know, it just, I mean, it, it, it wears you down because 
you don't want to fire people back. You don't want to use the same tactics. Of course not. But it but it wears you down. So if people if people say to you, why didn't you just deal with him? What do you say to that? Well, he, he was a long tenured employee. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, the uh, in 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 his words, the subject matter expert. Um, and and he framed that many times to me that he was the North American subject matter expert. Okay. Um, on on, and uh, you know a, a common phrase uh, or claim he had was he's taught half the world our trade. Mm-hmm. So, you know I, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that you know he had uh, a lot more experience in the business than I did, a lot more tenure. And I'm talking to my sergeant saying, you know, this stuff's going on. It's not right. And Oh, yeah, I know, Don. I'll talk to him again. Uh, yeah, I get it. You know, I know you get it. I know you get it. I'll talk to him again. But, you know, what happens, in my opinion, is as these things go longer and unchecked, it just empowers the individual. Was there obscenity involved on a regular basis? I mean, was he... Yeah, there was a lot of obscenity. Um, it evolved into, um, you know, my body type was criticized, the side of my size of my head... The manner in which I ate, he said he couldn't stand. Uh, my technical background, I wasn't professional. Um, the work I did, he criticized on a regular basis. He'd take over jobs on a regular basis. Contradicted many of my decisions, which were solid decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we'd go behind, you know, this would be done behind your back. You'd go to an investigator after I'd made a plan to do X, and he'd go and, and contact them without any input from myself, and now we're going to make a why. And, uh, and then, the, you know, it, it's just undermining. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Make it clear that the, the bullying and harassment w- was not just directed at me. I mean, it was predominantly at me because I was the one co-worker for, I'm going to say, seven of the years I worked there before a third party got hired. We work in close contact with a, a group of people who are uh, surveillance monitors uh, in our wire room, um, many of them female, and uh, the the tormenting and uh, and harassing and bullying that went on towards those people, some of them uh, directly uh, involved with the bullying and, uh, and harassment, others it was comments or implied, but... Um, this is, sounds really harsh, but this was a common statement uh, from this co-worker that uh, all the women in the back room are fat and uneducated and overpaid. And that if they really wanted to get a job, they should get an education. All right, same guy. Same guy. So what happens? I mean, this has to be reported. Again, tell us, please, what was done in order to take care of this, to address this? Was there any suspension? Was there any uh, docking of pay? Was there any threat of, of, uh, of, of losing a job? What was done? What, was, what, what took place to ease the situation for you and for the women you just told us about? Well, it had gone on for so long by the time I got there. A lot of people were just resigned to the fact that, uh, you know, this guy wasn't going to get moved. Um, I was contacted by three of the previous sergeants that were in there that uh, expressed to me that they tried to do something about it and were continually uh, denied the ability to do anything, just leave it alone. Um, so there was lots done. Um, by 2013, I was ready to uh, quit in, in severe distress. And an acquaintance of mine who I've known uh, 
quite a while before my time at the police service, uh, a superintendent, I met with him, and I said to him, what's, you know, this is what's going on. I can't deal with this anymore. i got to get out of here. And uh, he said, you know, uh, based on the information I provided, he was obliged to uh, write a letter of complaint to the chief, um, and it, which detailed, you know, many of the actions I described. Uh, that, in turn, prompted a harassment investigation against the the coworker and a uh, professional standards investigation against the boss. So um, that started, uh, I'm going to say, in 2014, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Did that just make things worse? Yes, it did, because the police service decided to leave the boss, who now uh, was under investigation uh, for information I brought forward, and they left him as my boss. He wasn't removed. So that uh, action alone um, pretty much spelled in my mind that you know, this probably wasn't going to end well. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, a robust uh, ad campaign on our internet and, and uh, on our, uh, you know, in the hallway signs up, bullying and harassment's not tolerated. We had to take an online course about it. Uh, and yet, you know, here I am living it. and uh, Every day. Every day. Every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Yep. Did it affect your Did it affect your work? Um, you know, I, I suppose it had to in a lot of ways. I mean, you, you got to be pretty sharp, and uh, what's about you? You got to make some pretty quick decisions. Mm-hmm. Put myself in harm's way on many, many, many occasions, which I'm I'm proud to say that. But um, if if you've got a partner who you can't trust 110 percent, um, that's a very dangerous situation. You know what's really? I'm sorry. You know what's really uh, disturbing is that bullies just get away with it. They just s- systemically get away with it. We were talking about bullies, uh, kid bullies, yesterday, and now here we're talking about workplace bullying, and they seem to get away with it. So I, I had a. Uh, they started an investigation, and a private investigator was hired by the HR department of the Edmonton Police Service, who was a, a known to the inspector at the time, a female inspector. Uh, I went for an interview, uh, spent four hours in an interview, three and a half hours, I'm going to say. At, you know, at that mark, he said, oh, i got enough information. I'm going, well, hey, I've got, I'm like halfway through my story. <laughs> he said, no, i got enough here. So uh, the EPS decided out of that information they were going to bring 15 allegations forward. Um, This took between January and uh, I'm going to say August, sorry, probably June, July of 14 before they wrapped up the investigation. The investigation came back. They verified what I said, what my two coworkers said, but they only verified three of the 15 instances of bullying and harassment that were brought forward. So nothing changed, really. And as an example of the how they, I'm going to use the word cherry-picked, the information, and uh, here's the example. I went to the investigator, uh, this private investigator who was hired to kick off the interview. Uh, Within, I'm going to say a week after that, I'm going by my bad memory, but uh, it's all, I've got notes on all this in emails, Roy, it's Mm -hmm. all documented. I find out they had a surreptitious device on the vehicle that I predominantly drove, a work vehicle. They were monitoring you. Well, they claim it was uh, just testing devices. Um, um, 
I brought that forward when I found out, and they said, oh, I, they, t- they told me, but, you know, do you really think I would have driven that vehicle to no. get off this? No, no. Right? No. So they came back in the harassment investigation and said, well, I've got access to the accounts of all those devices, so I should have known where it was. Which, you know, the, the rationale behind that would mean I need to spend six or seven hours of my day going through our equipment, making sure it's where it's supposed to be. So, and the situation just becomes worse and worse and worse as it goes along. Yeah. Um, what, 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 what might have been on a scale of one to ten might have been a, a four uh, at the beginning. By the time you're years into this, the four becomes an eight or a nine because you're anticipating what's going to happen uh, during the day when you get up in the morning. Let me just ask Bob Ladin, who is uh, Don Goss's lawyer, Bob, is there something you want to add to all of this? Is there is there a, a lawyer's perspective that needs to be heard here? Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because doing a lot of criminal defense work, uh, I go to court and have many times where the sort of work that Don does um, results in an affidavit, search warrant, tracking warrant, and uh, these things come before the court. But rarely do you, do you get to hear what Don talks about, which is a systemic problem with within the organization so you've got basically you got city police Edmonton City Police have a chain of command the police act police regulations discipline so it's fairly regimented and it's a tried and true proven process then you get a guy like Don that's uh, sincere hard-working in in a very highly specialized unit that doesn't have the same protection under the police act or uh, other legislation, but is, as he said, a civilian. So he's really on the outside, and when the organization gets complaints or there's problems, there is a chain of command, there is a process, there are disciplinary hearings, and uh, it's like that across Canada. It works. You get a civilian like Don who is subject to bullying and harassment, where do you go, what do you do? Well, you complain. So you complain within... The, the service, and you complain about the lack of supervision and looking the other way and not dealing with it, and uh, the wagon circle, and really they look at it, the Don's on the outside, even though he's an integral, very essential part of what they do and how they do their business in that particular area. So it's extremely frustrating, and uh, what, what captured my attention was Don standing up and... Uh, right is right and wrong is wrong so why are you taking your time and effort and he goes you know it's wrong it's not it's it's just not the way it should be so a lot of people look and say you know what that can be the next guy's problem or someone else's problem or in don's case because he is a tough guy and he's a stand-up guy says you know what i'm not going to walk away from this because it's wrong they're not dealing with it because they don't have to deal with it so uh unfortunately he's got to put his own uh, money and time and effort, and we did do a statement of claim, and we filed a statement of claim in the Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta seeking damages, but the process itself uh, is going to be uh, quite revealing because it's a public document, the process is public, and uh, if you can't deal with it internally in a proper way, you've got to go public, and uh, you see it with the female RCMP officers, who have sued on harassment and uh, sexual harassment and things of that nature. And Don is the first one stepping up and stepping out and saying, you know what, this is wrong. 
and uh, if they circle the wagons and can't deal with it, well, let's see what, what the public court will do with it. So the legal action has been filed. It has. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Yesterday, before we went on the air, I had a conversation with my old friend Dan McTague. And I've known Dan, this goes back to probably about 1992, 1993, during the Jean Chrétien first election victory time. And uh, I, I talked a lot with Dan in those days, and he was extremely critical of the fact that the prime minister, the new prime minister, Mr. Chrétien, had uh, in one swell foop decided that he wasn't going to follow through with his cornerstone election platform promise, and that was to dump the GST. You know, I told you, we're going to get rid of that, and that's that. I told you once, I told you twice, I'm not going to tell you a second time. So, I can't do that very long because it wrecks my throat. So, t- put them up. Put them up. So, uh, so I talked to that. Did you like that impression? Was that okay, Dan? I thought it wasn't bad. It was right up there with Jean from the days of past. But, yeah. you know, I've, I, I've got to sure tell was. you, I got to tell you, you, if that Preston Manning come back, I'm, in, I'm coming back too. <laughs> Anyhow, so, <laughs> so we had a lot of conversations on and off the air, and you were very, very critical of the fact that Mr. Kretchen didn't follow through with the GST promise, and I know that cost you. And you've always been an outspoken guy. You've always said what's on your mind. You've kept, you've been a team player when you had to be, and, 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 and I think that you, you, you do... You, you represented the people of your writing extremely well. I didn't agree with the policies of the government, which is no surprise, but you worked with John Chrétien, you worked with Paul Martin, probably better with Martin than with Chrétien. And then along comes Justin. Well, there, were a couple of, there were a couple of intermediaries along the way, but, uh, you know, they're asterisks on the page of history, pages of history. Oh, hi, Michelle. Hello. <laughs> I'm an asterisk, too. I'm an asterisk, too. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Michelle Simpson. Nice, nice to hear from you, Dan. Hey, good to hear from you, Michelle. I was listening to you guys there, and it's uh, quite a quite an opportunity to, uh, to be here. I'll just leave. You guys talk. Yeah, well. You don't need me. What do you Michelle, need me for? <laughs> <laughs> Michelle showed a uh, real, real chutzpah uh, back uh, when it came to uh, putting out uh, our information as members of Parliament. To she sure did. The tax money that we're spending. And, uh, you know, I give her full credit. That uh, that took real, you know, guts to do what she did and uh, stood up against a lot of those who uh, just thought she was breaking the line and uh, not helping others. But it was the right thing to do. It was right then. And, of course, it turned out to be absolutely right today since everybody's following your leadership. Yeah. You know, uh, not everybody knows the story. A lot of people do, but not everybody knows the story. Michelle Simpson, as a liberal member of parliament and a rookie, decided that she had a responsibility to her constituents and Canadians everywhere and set the example for the other members of parliament. And so she posted her expenses online. And for that, she was dragged through the mud by her own party. She was punished by the, uh, by the party whip. She was Brought into the leader's office, it was one of the asterisks known as Ignatieff, and uh, he f- first tried to bribe Michelle, and then she was punished. And uh, she said, well, why don't you do what I do, the rest of you? And they said, no, you just stop being honest with Canadians. Those aren't, aren't the words they used, but might as well have. So so I had a conversation with Dan Mateg yesterday, and Dan 
I, I, I sort of th- I thought, and I said to you at the time, I said, we have to do this on the air. So last night I'm thinking, why the heck don't I talk to him about this? This is serious. It's, it's, it, it matters. It's a, a long-time, long-standing member of parliament who served with two prime ministers who has significant concerns about the current prime minister and the relationship you had with him and how you see this particular government of Mr. Trudeau performing and going forward. So one of the things that you, uh, when, when we had our conversation, um, you, you said to me that he has surrounded himself Mr. Trudeau has by yes men and hand and, and yes women, handpicked for their compliance, and uh, they're really not able to do what Trudeau talks about all the time, and that is represent the diversity within this country. Well, you know, it, it may sound sound uncharacteristic, or some would say, you know, uh, this is the wrong way to approach your new colleagues. Uh, people give you the same opportunity when you were first member of Parliament, but I mean, I have to. Uh, recognize what has happened now almost uh, three years into this the mandate of this Liberal government, uh, that members of Parliament, backbenchers, um, aren't just silent when it comes to very controversial things. Those who do raise legitimate concerns, and here I'm thinking, of course, of uh, proposed changes to uh, gun legislation. Uh, We've heard this earlier with concerns about the Prime Minister's antics in India, uh, where members of Parliament usually say, look, we are really the uh, the emblems of what's happening in writings. We need to speak out. We need to raise these things above all in caucus, behind closed doors. The fact that they are not able to do that, or they're excoriated for doing it, or worse, that you have the Prime Minister's own staff sitting in caucus is something I I could never have fathomed. In my caucuses, yes, we had many times where I was on the wrong side of uh, what the majority there wanted, but I you know, stood my ground. Michelle did very much the same thing as you explained. But never did we have a situation where we'd have the staff of the Prime Minister coming in and taking notes. Um, this was sort of sacrosanct. No, we were never. elected members or senators. Is that intimidating? Never. Yes. It would Sorry. be. What's the message that is being sent by the party leader, in this case also the Prime Minister, when his senior staff, would that include Jerry Butts? Well, it would, and Katie Telford and uh, whoever else. I mean, I, I know these two to be, you know, the direct confidence of the, of the PM, but... To my earlier point, which was that I've noticed when the Prime Minister made, of course, a selection of candidates, and Prime Ministers always have that sort of discretion, um, the, the selection was really based on people who, you know, uh, beyond inexperience, were most likely not to object to certain ideas that he had, um, and were not going to present a problem for him, either in caucus or on the floor of the House of Commons. I mean, the Liberal Party has always been a big tent. A lot of diversity, a lot of very different opinions from coast to coast, representing the truth, uh, thought diversity, not just cultural diversity, but thought diversity exists in Canada. It's not a monolith. But uh, it would appear that uh, either he can't handle, you know, uh, stress or pressure from people who might rival him in terms of thought or ideas or, you know, presenting good positions. But what he has now is a caucus that's uh, really very compliant, very effete, it's very weak. Uh, And frankly, if if his reputation takes a, a hit, as I believe it is now, there's no one there in the wings to replace him. There really is no one out there that they've cultivated. In our time, when Michelle was there, we always had other people. Maybe they weren't the grace or best of leaders, but we always knew there was a succession plan. Our liberal succession plan has basically been made on one name, one name only. He's a rock star. He's a superstar. Yeah. But what do we do after he's gone? The fact is the party could be very well back to where it was back in 2011. What was what? 30, about, about 38 seats. 32. 32. Yeah. I was number 34. <laughs> You're counting. I love it. Well, it wasn't quite as bad as the Conservatives in 93 when they went down to two seats. No, uh, and that's, you know, those are tectonic shifts that happen once every half century. Or so. yeah. but, 
this here is clearly a, a, a grave concern, I think, for uh, us older veteran liberals who've been around for a long time, who've been in the trenches since we're 14 years of age, um, who've served uh, several uh, ministers, who've worked, uh, you know, uh, the hustings, uh, who've served several terms. I mean, there is a real disconnect. Uh, all the marbles, all the... We, we put all our marbles in one simple bag, and uh, it's clear that uh, if this fellow can't handle it, um, it's going to bring a whole you know, card, house of cards down. I think that's my concern is that the Liberal Party may uh, may not survive um, the departure of Justin Trudeau at some point down the road. There is no succession plan, and uh, it won't be a question about Pat Maladadouj or the king is dead long live the king. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dan McTague, former Liberal Member of Parliament, 18 years. Michelle Simpson was a one-term Liberal Member of Parliament. What was your writing, Dan? Uh, there are several. Ontario writing was the original one. That was Pickering, all of Pickering, Ajax, and all of Whitby. Uh, the second one was Pickering, Ajax, Oxbridge, and I finally ended with Pickering, uh, uh, Scarborough East. Okay, and Michelle had the rest of the province. Absolutely. <laughs> Michelle, uh, what what stands out to you about Mr. McTague? And um, and and I, I'm going to ask Dan about his relationship with Justin Trudeau in just a second. But what stands out to you about about Dan and you know just just what hap- was happening around him and maybe involving him heading toward 2015 when he he might have considered running again? Well, certainly, I, you know, I wasn't surprised. Um, because you're not allowed to ha- have your own head anymore in the party. You tow the party line. I thought it was bad before, but it's even worse. And uh, I could see that writing on the wall. In fact, Dan and I have since spoken, and I think we're both in the same boat. We still may be liberals, but I'm not a card-carrying liberal. No, exactly. Both of you. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pathetic, uh, and it's sad because we had both been in the trenches for yeah. decades, yeah. As, as, and and not. I didn't think it's an age thing either because I uh, didn't think a lot of those that are within my within my bandwidth are still very much active and uh, very disappointed. Michelle, why didn't you run again? Well, uh, partly because of the way I was treated during that whole period when I posted my expenses. Mm -hmm. And um, I could basically see the writing on the wall that they, you know, were going to win or, you know, know, keep opposition, but that somehow the circle would be smaller and you'd have less input, not more. Dan, in the email, one of your emails to me this morning, you wrote, uh, Justin Trudeau has an unserious mind. What did you mean? Well, I don't think there's much in the way of uh, his performance as a leader that puts him in what one would think of him as a, a strong, effective leader who takes uh, matters seriously. And it, it isn't just a spectacle that we saw in his recent trip to India. But I think on many occasions, uh, there's been a you know a litany of examples of where I think the prime minister either doesn't understand the seriousness of the decisions that he's making, uh, or and if he does, he's either receiving bad advice or he simply believes that uh, there's only one way of uh, proceeding with uh, leadership, and that's divide and conquer. Uh, I say I'm serious because I don't think he has the experience necessary to, to conduct, uh, you know, um, a way of approaching uh, issues across the country, the diversity of issues across the country. 
that I think uh, has at, as its uh, as its origins or as its beginnings the the uh, interest in the unity of the country to suggest as he has done on many occasions uh, and they may be slips of the tongue words like people kind uh, dismissing people who are having trouble making ends meet with respect to uh, fuel bills hydro bills um, we've seen comments uh, that have come forward. Uh, where he seems to, uh, you know, really only gravitate to one one section of the political spectrum, and that's the far left. Uh, I tend to think that uh, these, while these are important things, they are not the only things that govern a country. As a prime minister, my experience with them, including working with his father as a very young intern uh, in the prime minister's office and for his housing minister during difficult times when we had 21 and 22 percent here, going back to 1981, 82, uh, or the prime ministers Martin or, or Kretzing, when faced with a problem, particularly, you know, uh, one that has a tendency not just to divide the country, but to divide your own caucus, the last thing you do is to try to take sides, ramrod people, threaten them, uh, and then, of course, uh, at the end of the day, assume that these are the only issues that, uh, by which to govern a country. Uh, and, I, you know, I guess I get the idea. You want to be a bit of a media star. You want to show your socks here. You want to come out there and make flippant remarks. But at the end of the day, uh, there are very serious problems facing this country, and uh, they're not made any less, uh, you know, uh, important than someone who trivializes these in the way in which he conducts himself. And I think it's unfortunate. Uh, my conclusion is that uh, this is a, you know, a very unserious prime minister uh, confronting very, very important issues, uh, and either doesn't have the right stuff to handle it or is being given bad advice as to how to handle it. Michelle, you sat with Mr. Trudeau in question period uh, on a daily basis. As his seatmate, do you agree fundamentally with what Dan just said? Oh, yeah. We had a lot of sizzle and very little steak. And what he would bring into the house was local newspapers, and he would show me pictures of himself, you know, that were published in local papers down in his writing. And I used to think, and then he'd, he'd race in and say, how are we voting? And I said, did you even read it? And so I, I agree wholeheartedly. He's got the personality, but it's that of a rock star. And you can't govern a country that way. So he would bring in, he would bring in newspapers from his writing, and he would show you, before a question period, he would show you photographs, pictures of himself in those newspapers, and then he would say to you, how are we voting? Yeah, like, uh, and nine times out of ten, Dan will tell you, they had a sheet that, you know, said this is the way we're going to be voting. So it was either a whip vote or it was a free vote. Uh But, you know, it was clear to me he hadn't spent any time looking at or researching what it was we're going to vote on. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Kerry is a chronic pain patient, intractable pain patient, and she had her medications, her opioid medications, um, taken away from her by her specialist. She'd been getting them for some 15 years. And uh, Carrie told her story, and what it did was it caused people to cry. I saw emails all week long from listeners who said either I, they heard Carrie on Sunday or they listened back at RoyGreenShow.com in the podcast, and they were crying. And so uh, Carrie's back with us. Can you hear me, Carrie? Yes, I can. Okay. Are you, are you on speakerphone? Not any longer. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah, it doesn't sound very good when we're on speaker. You had a tremendous yes, you had a tremendous impact on people last weekend. Thank you. I'm I'm very honored. Well, people feel, you know, listeners feel very very strongly. We have a we're very compassionate people are very compassionate generally. They don't like to see individuals harmed. When when a story is understood, when a situation is understood, and it becomes very clear that there's harm being done, then that's when folks have had enough. And this whole issue about the opioid crisis has been so managed and massaged by the side that wants to take away the opioid medications from pain patients who live in agony every day that it, it's, they've become almost um, collateral damage. But now when we hear the stories of the individual pain patient, like yours, it brings the true picture back to people's focus. So not everybody was with us last Sunday. Can you just give us an overview of, of who you are, what you're living with, what, what, and what happened to you? Just a summary of, of what we talked about last weekend. Um, let's see. I, um, I have been, <clears throat> 20 years ago, a very large, heavy object fell on my head and damaged my spine. And um, so for the last 20 years, I've, I've lived with constant daily pain. And because of the type of injury that it was, it has caused all other types of um, subsequent problems. And I've, I've, I've got nine separate diagnoses, all of which cause constant pain, um, seven uh, cause neuropathic pain specifically, which is that type of pain causes a, an intense burning pain when your nerves are just overactive and damaged. And four of those seven uh, diagnoses are autoimmune, which is, those are separate if you, issues that I have. But, um, so I mean, I've got one of these disorders is chronic regional pain syndrome, type 2, which is a result of direct damage to a nerve. And um, it's, it scores so high on uh, something that's called the McGill pain scale that it's sometimes called the suicide disease because it can cause you such intense pain that you, you really just don't. It, it removes your will to, to, to live because you can't function. It's so painful. It's, it scores higher, actually, on this, this McGill pain scale that it's, it's higher than cancer pain. And this is what you live with? Yes, every day. And I, I wanted to say something, if I can, just to describe how I felt um, when my medications were cut off this most recent time, now it's been about a week and a half, um, the first feeling I had was I was in shock. I was, I was literally just numb. And then, and then I felt as though my doctor had dropped a hammer on my head. You know, I, I told my husband as I absorbed the shock, it turned to a feeling of, of betrayal because my beloved doctor, with whom I had entrusted my life, 
was refusing now to treat painful diseases that he himself had diagnosed for me. And this is how I explain it to people. I, I felt as if I had been on a, on a plane ride with my doctor. We were up in the air. We were on this ride together. And uh, suddenly he turned to me and said, I have no choice, but you, you have to get off now. And um, I can't provide you with a parachute and then just shove me out a door, knowing that I would likely not survive without treatment. You know, this is literally a life or death situation for chronic pain patients like me. And people really need to understand that. It is life or death for us. You know, we have, it is so disturbing to hear this because it's so unnecessary. It is so unnecessary because the opioid medication, morphine's been used for forever to, to deal yes. with pain, forever. And very effectively. And very effectively. And it's very, and it's very affordable. It's, it is very affordable. So yes. uh, it is so disturbing to know this is happening to you. We've talked to, and you're in the United States, and we just, well, there's no border when it comes to this issue. No, We've talk- I, I have something I'd actually like to say about that. Okay, but, we'll take a break in just a but, second, but but then we'll we'll have you do that. I just I just want to let people know that there are people on so many people on millions of people on both sides of the border, yes, who are being consigned to live in hell daily, yes, because they may not have their prescription medication. Meanwhile, the fantasy that's being spun is that the opioid medication that the pain patients receive somehow responsible for the opioid crisis that politicians talk about on a regular basis and it is critical when 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 an addict becomes overdoses and and, and dies it's a terrible situation for the mm-hmm. for the for the pain patient the opioid medication is a matter of survival not death by overdose survival by a prescription that has been written by a physician who's worked out the necessary parameters for that particular patient. That has now been destroyed. And I want to add this for our, everybody in this country. The Canadian Pain Society, which includes doctors and scientists, all right? The Canadian Pain Society, and in, uh, in their description of who they are, uh, they write, quote, supports the treatment of pain as a basic human right. End quote. So far, so good. However, the Canadian Pain Society has a major conference in Montreal in May, and their keynote speaker is Dr. Jane Ballantyne. And Dr. Jane Ballantyne is an American anesthetist who believes that chronic pain patients should just be required to live with it. So much so, so much for the point by the Canadian Pain Society that uh, they support treatment of pain as a basic human right when their keynote speaker says, just live with it. I just wanted to point that out. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Carrie, what was was it you wanted to to share with us? Well, first of all, I'd like to touch back on what you you started talking about before we went to break, which Mm -hmm. is that physicians and chronic pain patients are assigned the responsibility for for the problem, and the stigma is firmly attached to us. 
we're blamed as the instruments of addiction when the facts simply do not support this version of the story. And we deserve the right to some semblance of a functional life similar to that of a person blessed with good health. Good health, I mean. Waking up and living your life where you function, quote-unquote, normally is something which I know very well is taken for granted until you lose it forever, as I did 20 years ago. And, you know, I, I would just like to make an appeal. I really would like to make an appeal because, as we discussed, this issue has no borders and should not be politicized. And with that in mind, I'd like to make an appeal to everyone affected, whether they're chronic pain patients themselves or the family and friends of chronic pain sufferers. I, I beg all of you to take action, speak out on behalf of those of us directly affected by what I perceive this is a war against access to our treatment. You need to contact anyone you know in the media, talk to doctors you know, contact government officials and your elected representatives who are creating these policies that are making us the collateral damage. We have to summon all our energy to help ourselves and help educate all these very influential people about the other side of this story. Mm -hmm. Because those people who are denying us our treatment and they think it will prevent addiction do not understand what is being forced on us with the best of intentions. I believe they have the best of intentions. But we're being harmed by these actions and we're being forced to choose between life and death and sadly, too many have already chosen suicide. So please, everybody, take action. We need your help. I'll endorse, the, I'll help. endorse that 100% based on, on what I've heard from so many people and, and talking to physicians as well. Uh, some of them are just aghast that they cannot yeah. do what they feel they should. Now, last well, time when you were with us last up. weekend, there were a couple of things that you wanted to say. And I want to make sure that yeah. we have the, you have the chance to do so. We have about four minutes here. So go okay. ahead, Carrie. Well, what I'd like to say first is I, I have compassion for the victims of addiction. I don't want anyone to think that I don't. I know they're suffering greatly in dealing with those issues. And I would never do anything to add to their suffering. But these policies and actions are causing immense suffering for all chronic pain patients in the U.S. and Canada and everywhere. And I, I don't think those dealing with addiction would want to inflict suffering on us, but they are. We're, as I said, the collateral damage of many of these policies and guidelines, and I do not believe for a moment that this is what they intend, but it is what's happening. And here in the United States, there are an estimated... 116 million people who are suffering from chronic pain and we're being forced, we're being told that we can only now be treated by pain management specialists. There are only approximately 4,000 pain management specialists, chronic pain management specialists here in the U.S. 
and they're expected to deal with managing our treatment. And that, that's a crisis for us because that's an impossible ratio. Mm-hmm. We, don't have the, we don't have the resources here either. No. We don't. No. We simply no. do not. And they're talking and, about and multidiscipline uh, approaches. There aren't enough people. There are, enough, there are not enough no. trained professionals to do that job. No. So in, in between, we, we, we can't be forced into that without, mm-hmm. it's sort of like my, my, my comparison to the, the no parachute. You know, we, there's no parachute. There's mm-hmm. this immense gap. And we're, we, we've been orphaned. I have to ask you this. At, how, how are you doing? You said that it's been a, a week now that you haven't been prescribed your pain meds. How are you doing? I have approximately two weeks worth of pain medication before my most recent prescription runs out. I am trying not to panic. I am trying desperately to find someone else, another doctor. But um, I have not been successful. And, um, you know, I'm trying to remain calm. I'm trying really hard not to be not to cry like I did last week, but this is so terrifying for me. And I, I just have one final comment because I know now we have about we're going seconds. to have to conclude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would love to restore sanity, humanity, and compassion to the conversation about opioids. And I would love to see access to treatment restored to the millions of us who've been forcibly and involuntarily denied the very medications which enable us to function and have some semblance of a life worth living. We want to live. We all have family who feel helpless to ease our suffering. Right. They look into our eyes with tears in theirs as they witness our constant, unrelenting pain. Okay. Carrie, we're going to have to... I'll stay in touch with you. And they can't help us. We'll have you back on. I'll touch base with you before the next couple of weeks. I'll see if I can help you a little bit as well. Okay? Thank you so much. Take good care. Thank you. You too. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Let's talk to um, the health director of Human Rights Watch in the U.S. Uh, Diedrich Lohman joins us from New York. Mr. Lohman, thank you very much for the time. There's Human Rights Watch in Canada and in the United States. What do you do as an organization? Um, we are we are in, uh, an international human rights organization. We look into human rights abuses in about 90 countries around the world. Um, and, and, and we advocate on behalf of, uh, of victims of abuse. And what made you interested in the issue of chronic pain patients and uh, the treatment or lack of treatment they're receiving at the moment? Well, we for, for years, we have been looking at, um, at end-of-life care in countries around the world. And one of the things that we've seen over and over again is that people who, for example, have significant pain as a result of, uh, of, of cancer, um, when they do not have access to treatment for their pain, um, they often describe their suffering in very similar terms to a victim of torture. Um, both groups will talk about how the, the pain is simply unbearable, how they would do anything to make the pain stop. And, of course, in, this, in the case of, of torture victims, often uh, the police are after a confession, and so 
the individual will sign a confession and the torture stops. For a cancer patient with significant pain, there is no kind of out like that. And so we often hear people talk about becoming suicidal, um, you know, basically seeing death as the only way out. Uh, of uh, <clears throat> of an uh, an untenable situation, and uh, so this this is a, a topic that we've worked on for years, um, and and obviously chronic pain patients um, who do not have access to appropriate treatment face a similar kind of situation. Indeed, they do, and uh, it's, the crisis has become far more severe as the opioid crisis that politicians talk about a great deal is completely separate to what's happening to pain patients. The pain patients are having their medications withdrawn while they are not part of the opioid crisis. They, their crisis is not having the medication they've been prescribed for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Our last guest uh, talked about suicide ideation, also having had her, she's just received her last opioid medication. She's terrified of what's going to happen to her two weeks from now when it runs out. Suicide is part of the, part of the picture for her. And I've spoken to family members. I've talk, spoken to orphans and, and, and a widow of a chronic pain patient who was passed from doctor to clinic to doctor. No one would look after him, and he went into the backyard of their home in Vermont and shot and killed himself. This is not the first time, won't be the last time. And the chronic pain patient seems to be convenient roadkill for the opioid issue, and there are millions of chronic pain patients. So how, does, how do you investigate this? And if you find what I suspect you will conclude, what happens then? So the, we're, we're, we're interested in, in hearing exactly those kinds of stories. Uh, I mean, we've, we've, we've heard over and over again that people are, as, as you mentioned, being forced of medications that often have, have, have helped them control their pain for extended periods of time. We've heard a lot of stories of, uh, of chronic pain patients who are basically uh, sent from one doctor's office to another doctor's office because, in a way, um, you know, some people describe it as kind of it's the new leper, right? Nobody wants to touch Indeed the, they uh, are. the patient because, because, um, because they are seen as, uh, as, 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 as toxic. Um, and so the first, the first step we're taking is to start speaking with uh, chronic pain patients about the challenges that they are facing in um, in getting appropriate treatment for for their pain, um, including this kind of involuntary discontinuation of uh, of treatment. Um, obviously, from our perspective, it is it is important to see what government policies uh, are affecting the situation of of chronic pain patients um, and. The, um, the guidelines that the Center for Centers for Disease Control um, uh, in the U.S. have, have put out uh, a, a few years ago uh, are something that we're looking at closely to see the, what role those guidelines are playing in, uh, in what is happening with chronic pain patients um, uh, right now. Um, in terms of what we will do uh, once we have conducted our research, well, the, the, the way we generally operate as an organization is we, we investigate a situation and then we publish what we, what we find, an analysis of both kind of the, the, policy, uh, well, the, the policy reasons behind the problems that, that, um, um, that we are investigating, um, as well as we try to tell the stories of people who are affected. 
Um, and so the, the idea is that basically by putting those together, um, we can then start going out to government officials to advocate for, uh, for change. Obviously, it's too early since we're only just starting this process to, um, to speculate what kind of changes we might be advocating um, for, but, um, but we will certainly be reaching out to, uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to the relevant government officials um, here, here in the U.S., um, to raise with them the concerns that we have about um, about the situation of chronic cancer. I think you'll find that the CDC guidelines uh, have created mayhem and panic, and that the CDC is well aware of this. We have similar guidelines in this country, and uh, the doctors were told that doctors should just look at this as a guideline, not necessarily something that they have to follow, not necessarily something that requires them to pull patients off the opioid medication they require for any level of quality of life. But tell that to the doctor who feels panicked. Tell that to the doctor who tells the patient, I'm sorry, I'm taking you off these medications because I'm afraid for my license and I am not willing to sacrifice my medical license to make you well. So good luck and goodbye. We've also heard stories about doctors who've quit practicing pain medicine entirely because they're afraid of the situation. It is, it is out of control and unfortunately, it is creating victims where it's absolutely unnecessary. What about your Canadian arm? What are they doing? Um, well, you know, we have a um, we have a very small office in uh, in Canada, um, and so um, so really, kind of the the <clears throat> I head our, our health and human rights division, which is which is based uh, um, in in our headquarters, um, and so. Um, we, you know, at this at this point, um, our focus uh, on this particular project is uh, is here in the U.S. Um, I imagine, however, that you know some of what is happening, or you know, some of, of kind of the analysis that we will we be we will be doing on the situation in the U.S. will also be relevant for the situation in Canada. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, first. First, we need to uh, first we need to conduct our investigation, and uh, and then we'll you know we'll see kind of what the next steps are uh, in terms of the advocacy here in the U.S. and potentially elsewhere as well. Well, I'll be happy to help you with any information I can provide, and I can provide you information from the United States, and certainly provide you with a great deal of information from this country, and uh, and put you in touch with patients on both sides of the border if you think that's of any assistance. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, it's eight at HRW, right, at humanrightswatch.org. Yes, it is. Mr. Lohman, thank you. I'll ask, I'll ask you back. Thank you very much. Roy Green Show, Chorus Radio Network. All right, now let's do this. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.